This morning's Old Testament reading includes some passages from the Hebrew Scriptures which are recited probably as much as or more than any others by Hebrews throughout the ages. They are the opening verses in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, and there it is written, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the gospel according to Mark in the 12th chapter, beginning of verse 28 and continuing through verse 32. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The encounter between one of the scribes and Jesus takes place on the heels of an exchange between some Hebrew religious officials known as Sadducees and Jesus. That exchange had to do with the nature of the life to come. We are told that a certain scribe who happened to be in fairly close proximity was impressed enough with Jesus' response that he wanted to follow up with a question that had to do with the nature of the life that is. In essence, what he's asking was, as good Hebrews, how should we then live? Now, if you were Francis Schaeffer, for those of you who remember him, you could have written an entire spiritual bestseller and followed up with ten films to begin to answer that very question. 
As a religious official tasked with interpreting the law, the scribe had devoted his professional life to considering and refining his own answers to this question for others. So certainly, he would have had his own opinion on the correct answer to the question he posed, and in all likelihood, he probably wasn't looking for an illuminating response that would reorient his religious worldview. More likely is that he was seeking an incriminating statement which would serve to diminish Jesus' stature as a rabbi, a, a teacher of Hebrews. What he got, at least here in this transcript from the Gospel according to Mark, was short, sweet, and profound, which is something that was characteristic of many of Jesus' teachings. Grounding his response in the received word of God, the incarnate word of God pointed this scribe first back to what would have been for him very familiar ground, the books of the law. I find it rather telling, though, that rather than point to the commandments as recorded in Exodus, Jesus instead quotes from a paraphrasing of the commandments later in Deuteronomy. He could have chosen to quote from the previous chapter of this very book in which all the commandments are recited verbatim. But rather, he begins right after that. Here in the sixth chapter where the first and greatest commandment starts to get unpacked and interpreted from law to life. I suppose the scribe would have found this answer sound enough and and not too controversial, but Jesus doesn't stop there. No, he goes on to add to it. And of course, that's something that one just didn't do unless you were like our inquisitor, a part of the scribes and Pharisees local union whose responsibility it was to do such things. What Jesus adds here is a paraphrase of what we often refer to as the golden rule. It too is based on the spirit of the law as contained in the Hebrew scriptures, only here he makes it more expansive. Not simply treat your neighbor as you would want them to treat you, but as good as you would like to be treated. Taken together, then, these two fairly simple, fairly straightforward rules for living form a pretty comprehensive framework for answering this question, how then shall we live? As we reflect on them today, we mustn't fail to do as Jesus taught and take these rules together, for they are inextricably linked. Gathered as we are this morning on the very day on which 504 years ago, Martin Luther set in motion the movement of church revitalization known as the Protestant Reformation, it is indeed good for us to reflect on Jesus' interpretation of how then shall we live? For that is, I think, just the question that lay at the heart of what motivated Luther to wrestle with his conscience 
five centuries and more ago. He didn't, after all, discern and pray and write about forming a new church. He was rather simply interested in better, more faithful answers to the question, how then shall we live in and as the church? I think a very big part of the answer that he eventually arrived at involved this foundational relationship between mankind and her creator. The church of his day had grown into a rather unwieldy corporate entity. It was much more at that point than a purely ecclesiological venture. That's not to say that at the grassroots level, there weren't many clergy who were very interested in the sheep of their flock. But the influence of the organization extended far beyond the sanctuaries of the local parish or even the grand cathedrals. The church had long since gotten involved in matters of politics and government, banking and finance, taxation and extravagant excess. To Luther and to others, she had drifted far afield of her mission to mediate the scriptures in a way that would help the people arrive at their own faithful answer to the question, how then shall we live? Even today, that calling remains at the very core of the church's mission. And even today, we risk leading people astray when we fail to incorporate both of Jesus' commands in our teaching and our living out of the gospel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord our God, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, are still not to be separated one from another. When they are, we as the church lose our unique identity in this world and find ourselves in dire trouble. If, for example, we take to heart the greatest commandment, that of loving God with our whole everything, and just stop right there, then we will be guilty of what the world often accuses the church of being guilty of, and that is of living in a monastic bubble. There are loud voices, even today, that are calling for just this, for the faithful to withdraw from this world into isolated Benedictine-like communities away from the other, loving only those who think like us, who believe like us. However, that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what Jesus modeled in a life obedient to God. Jesus was out there, both figuratively and literally. The Apostle Paul, obediently emulating the ministry of his master, wrote of being in the world, but not of the world. Cutting ourselves off from neighbors ignores the second part of Jesus' teaching. On the other hand, if we pour ourselves, mind, body, soul, and strength into loving our neighbors as ourselves, but leave God out of the equation, well, then we would rightly be called atheists. 
well-intentioned, perhaps, well-respected, perhaps, well-liked, perhaps, but atheists nonetheless. A couple of generations ago, John Lennon famously compared the Beatles' popularity in their heyday to that of Jesus, and he got into some hot water on account of it at the time. But to be fair, he probably had a valid point. John and his bandmates sang quite a bit about the virtues of love, and they also denigrated organized religion, perhaps in part, because they interpreted it as being self-serving and uncaring for those who weren't on the team. But by throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as so many in that era did, what was left was a world where everybody is to decide for themselves what love means, what love looks like, when they will love, and how they will love, and who they will love. Now, from a romantic songwriting perspective, that might sound just fine. But in reality, the truth is far from this utopian, lyrical dream. Woodstock would last less than half a week, and then it was back to the Cold War, to civil unrest, to police actions in South Asia, to assassinations of public figures, and more of the sorts of daily rituals that testified to the myth of human progress. It was back to Lord of the Flies. Too often we have chosen to ignore the inconvenient truth that mankind is, after all, a fallen race, that we are all blinded by our own sin, and that only Jesus has the power and the will to heal our affliction. So then, how shall we live? If neither of these approaches we've considered are satisfactory on our own, on their own, rather, it does seem that the manner which Jesus has described here in the Gospel according to Mark, with these two commandments complementing one another, is the way in which the Father intends for his children to live. After the model of Luther, we need to allow ourselves then to be reformed. We need to be born anew and live into the new creations that we have become through Jesus. It was probably a novel suggestion to the scribe who engaged with Jesus. It may well still be a novel suggestion for those living 2,000 years on. But these words of wisdom, spoken by the very wisdom of God, did not come with an expiration date. They were recorded and included in the Gospel according to Mark precisely so that we might continue to hear them, to reflect upon them, and to act accordingly, even in this generation, as Luther did in his, and McKemmy in his. How should we then live? Is not an academic or a theoretical exercise. It is a theological and practical adventure. It calls us into action with daily choices and associated consequences, both for ourselves, our neighbors, and our world. It involves participating in this present reality while foreshadowing and preparing for a more perfect 
future reality. When we as followers of Jesus, as individual disciples, or corporately as the church, reverently serve God and obediently love those we might not even like all that well, we are then fulfilling both of the mandates that the scribe was told comprise God's priorities for living as we were made to live. Two years ago, on Reformation Sunday, I stood in this pulpit and invited us to begin a season of prayer and discernment that we might hear and heed the Spirit's call to reformation as people and as a church. As we continue in this season of seeking God's will, may we be informed by Holy Scripture's guidance to those who have also inquired of the Master. How then shall we live? For his response, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.